But I've got myself in the right space right now and I've been in a good space for the last couple of years. I, I just, I really just, I just wish like this conversation, even, we're having a conversation now on the podcast and I just, I really wish even this, if there was one person that listened to it and said, you know what, I'm not okay, I'm going to go see someone or, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell my mum and dad or tell my wife that I'm having a tough time or talk it through with someone. That's all I want um, because that's the thing that saved me. Um, is that is that ability that I had a conversation with my parents. G'day and welcome to episode 36 of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. We're continuing our conversations surrounding mental health as part of a three-part series for the month of January. Today's guest, Sam Fryer, reached out to us during November. He was looking for a team to join and couldn't find any ag-related teams. We got chatting and Sam's story absolutely blew me away. For a bloke who's faced more than his fair share of challenges, it's Sam's optimism and zest for life that I find so infectious. Sam is a true storyteller and if you're anything like me during this chat, you'll be hanging off every word that he's saying. He had my complete and undivided attention. As we're talking about mental health, if today's episode raises any issues for you or you need someone to talk to, or you're worried about a friend or family member, you can reach out to the TX support line. You can either text or call them on 04888 469 or we can have a crack at the jingle. That's 04888 469 Rather than beating around the bush, I want to jump straight into today's conversation. It's incredibly captivating and inspiring, heartbreaking, Every emotion I think you can think of, but at the end of the day, Sam is so optimistic and his story is just absolutely incredible. Sam, working in the family business can be really tough for people and that transition from worker to owner or manager can really test some family relationships. How did it go for you guys and how did you approach it when you wanted to come home? It's um, it's bloody tricky. Like I'm not, I'm not saying that we've, got it right or nothing and we're, we're, we're but I think the best thing that we do is that every day we're working on it like um, before we came back in and brought into the partnership we we saw succession we you know started succession planning and went to a few workshops and started doing succession plan with our accountant with him and, and you know we, we just we're really even now like that would have been like a good like five or six years ago I think it must be up to about six six or seven sorry time's flown by but it um it's one of these things where it's every day even now like you know we, we still work on it like it's not it's never finished and it never will be I don't think until like you will have an end goal but the whole aspect of always working together and and keep working together because any any time little niggles and stuff like that in the family thing you kind of got to nip it in the butt pretty quick because you don't want it to they're the things that turn into big issues so I think for us our, our goal is that we always keep working on it and we always and we're aware of it and our, and our open communication is probably our greatest strength in that is we might not be the you know we might not have it all, all exactly right but we definitely are trying to communicate and work hard to get it as close as we can and how, how do you go I suppose from being a worker and then actually transitioning to then starting to run the family business like what role does your old man have now and what role do you have Mate, it's a probably long. It was still in that process, so I'm I'm lucky. I suppose lucky and unlucky in some ways. I've got I've got two parents that are that are, that are healthy, fit, and still in pretty old the prime of their life. Um, 
like mum and mum and dad, mum and dad, like you know, like they keep saying that you know, still got another good ten to fifteen years. They still want to keep ploughing on. So we're kind of still in the transitioning phase. So we're not really running the operations here, but we're doing a slow transitioning. So when I first came back, obviously you just as like everyone else, you come back into the business, you just pre-order the runaround ringer, a um, bit of a shit kicker on the side, and and you kind of slowly take on more and more responsibility. So we've kind of transitioned slowly. So we kind of, um, I'm responsible of a lot of the, uh, all of the livestock movements, the mustering and all, and all that comes on top of the, all that running, running of the livestock type, type show. Um, we get together in terms of um, infrastructure and stuff like that. When we come to building any, building anything or any work that's got to go on the place, we all get together and work together. Um, we all work together on the overall strategy of the business. But in terms of the day-to-day stuff, we kind of get together on the start of the week, have a Monday meeting, plan out what's ahead. And um, like, I'm, like I, I try not to, like I've got still got to know my place. Like we, we're still, you know, you slowly do want to take over the business. And, and mum and dad are aware of that. But also as the younger generation coming in, you've got to respect what they've done. Like my parents have kind of, they've, they, they, they were in a family partnership that kind of went a bit south. Um, and they've worked really hard to achieve what they have. So I think by having that respect towards them and not always wanting to, you know, as young people, it's hard to, you know, change your ways of, you know, you're not always right and you might have some amazing ideas, but you just got to give the old generation credit for what they've done. And I know times are changing, but you've still got to acknowledge of the past. And I think that comes a lot in the play with what we do. I try to always, you know, even though, even though I'm coming up with ideas and stuff and, and mum and dad are amazing at how they, how they listen to what I say um, a fair bit. Yeah, right. And so was farming always on the cards for you? Were you always going to end up back on the family farm? Yeah, mate. I think, I, 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 I'm not going to lie, I went, um, so I went to school in Brisbane uh, and I think like every other kid who kind of goes away, goes away to boarding school, I do two different things. I love it, but they can't wait to get back to the place. And I was kind of one of those ones where I was just hoping for the holidays. I was, I was keen to get back on the farm and or go to a mate's place or, you know, I just I kind of couldn't handle being in the classroom. Um, I think I drove all the teachers nuts and I, and I spent more time out of classrooms than in it getting kicked out. <laughs> but um, I, 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 I was lucky enough that I got given an opportunity to go down to Long Reach Parcel College and I, and I studied the horse course there. I was a bit lost when I left school and mum and dad turned me that one. I loved horses and I spent under John Arnold, an absolute ton ton about horses and, and he and he was a good mentor too. John John really kinda got me on the path and kicked me out the bum when I needed it and um it was great. And then I, I kinda finished up and I went into the golf. I, I worked in the golf under the Good Shepherd, um at Napco there up at Boomer and I learned so much from not only Fred but the people around there. It's a it's a great atmosphere in Napco and, and at that time they had some really good people and they were always bringing in schools and and for a young fellow who just with 10 ton of energy and, and just, you know, he was the best thing to do because I'd be working flat out all day and then, you know, we'd be partying on the weekends. And it, was just, it was just a really good spot to be. Um, and I've kind of always in the back of my mind, uh, like I, I did kind of want, want to see what the other side of the fence was like. So I met up, um, Emily and I got together about 11 years now ago and I moved to Townsville and tried to do the city thing for a bit, which didn't work out. I think it lasted six months and in that space I was a postie and, a, and doing a bit of landscape gardening and I just couldn't cop it so I um, come back out west. But uh, yeah, and then since then I've done a bit of work in the territory. I've, I was a livestock agent for a bit um, 
but yeah, I've, I've always loved, I've always loved beef. I've, I've loved, loved being in the industry. I've, I absolutely love cattle and, and, you know, I was lucky enough that I've, I've grown up on a place and that's kind of where it started. And so doing a bit of a backflip, I suppose, to those school years and we were chatting the other day and you mentioned that because I suppose the, the underlying piece around this topic and how we actually met was through Movember and the mental health aspect, but your exposure and I suppose those school years as well were a lot of challenges started before you even arrived in Brizzy with uh, your younger sister, was it, who losing her life? Yeah. So I, we were, um, I'm one of three. I was one of three. And the middle one, Alex, uh, she was born with cerebral palsy. And it was kind of one of those things growing up. It's pretty, it's pretty tough. It, even like you could see it on mum and dad too. Like they did an amazing job with us. Um, and, you know, having living, you know, four hours west of Townsville. And I think we spent that many weekends in my young life going to Townsville to appointments and specialists and just for Alex. And, and you know, mum, dad would be flat out at home and keeping everything going and, mum would run us in the town and, and you know, we, we were amazing for the support we had. But unfortunately, like when it, just before I went to boarding school, my youngest sister passed away. She ended up having a heart attack and, um, oh, she ended up having, having a, having a epileptic fit first up that rolled into a heart attack. And, um, she passed away when just about, who she was eight days, uh, she was, yeah, eight days after eighth birthday. So, um, yeah, only 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 little poor little thing, and and unfortunately, yeah, it, it hit the family pretty hard. And I think at that time, like you know, you're young, you, you can like I was only ten at the time. Like, and I just can't remember fully everything at that time. I think, and your memory does do that. It blocks out the pain a fair bit in in those in those crucial. In, you know, in, in, when you have have an incident like that. But I do remember just when I. Went to one of like it was only a year and a bit later that I went to boarding school, and I really struggled with that. I, I not at the time I didn't realise it, but it wasn't until later looking back that you know and I needed needed to see someone. I needed to talk to talk to someone. But at that time in life, like um, we talked about this previously, like no one ever teaches you at boarding school. They teaches you about physical fitness, you know, education and and eating right, but no one ever talks about the mental health side of things and it's, really a massive hole and and for someone in my situation like I had, a, I had a pretty tough time before this little start and like I made some amazing friends and stuff but you know I was, I was a kid that came from a school of five to a school of 1500 and you know I just lost my best mate so it was a pretty tough time and I wish I just would have had someone there to talk to at the time but um, but yeah and unfortunately I did it didn't and you know, I made it through but it's, it's one of those things where, you know, looking back, I really wish I had someone to talk. Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported? Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low-cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade, 
or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. Um, but yeah. Yeah, for sure. One thing I want to know, because it's, I suppose, an area which, well, f- from my perspective, doesn't get talked about, and that's like disabilities in the bush. And so well, the the exposure, and obviously, you're four, as you said, four hours from Townsville, um, your parents are raising two fit and healthy kids, and then they've got a kid with cerebral palsy as well. Like, how how busy were your parents? And like, did you see a toll on the farming business as well? And what role, I suppose, did other people in the community have with helping out your parents? Uh, well, I think it's, it's pretty hard to describe. I think as a child looking back and even now talking to mom and dad, um, it, it's a massive toll. Like it, it really, like, you know, the, the, when they first, uh, well, not long after I had Alex, I was still in the family partnership with one of my grandparents and they split that up. So during that time when Alex was young, um, they were trying to buy themselves out of that, uh, that side of the business. And dad was away doing a lot of contract mines work, just keeping that cash flow kicking um, while they're trying to build the business as well. And mum was working part-time as, in, um, in school as well as raising three kids. And yeah, obviously and then all the stuff that goes with a kid with special needs, it was, it was, a, it was a massive toll. And looking back, like, you know, it, during that time, no one talked about, it. no one talked about mental, mental health. No one, you know, you might've caught up with people and, and, and whatever, but you know, it wasn't that aware. It, that stigma was really around. And it, I could see the toll on my parents. And we were lucky enough that where we live, we had some amazing people just like down our road that come up and check in with mum and dad. That, you know, some of them would take, like, come and when dad was away, would come and help mum on the place, like, you know, either running waters or fixing stuff where she bounced around and toyed with three kids. And, you know, like, it, without the community around us, like, I, I don't know how they would have done it. Like, and we're so thankful. Um, I think that's a massive part of who I am and who their parents, my parents are too, is that we give back to the community. We're involved in a lot of community events and, and around here. And, and purely for that aspect, is it's some way to kind of say thank, thank you to the people who helped us when I was younger. Um, but yeah, in terms of like raising a child with disability in the bush, um, I can't speak from experience. Obviously, mum and dad did all the hard slog. I was, I was just, I, you know, like to me, I, it's, it's a hard thing to be in that situation because I didn't know any different. Like to me, I thought life was just awesome. Like, you know, I had my best mate with me and Alex and I, like, you know, and, and, and I, it, what I really struggled with was when you went to town or something like that and people treated her differently because she had a disability and, you know, people would look and, and you know, and, and, and it was just, stairs that kind of did it and it wasn't you know it was different in our small community because when you go to a bigger city like you know people are interested especially kids and kids can be pretty cruel and you know they ask you why your sister can't walk or washing a wheelchair and, and and you know it's not it's one of those things where to me i was like well well it's just because she is like you know she's like that's that's who she is like i, I didn't see anything different for her because that was just alex but um it was incredibly hard like to kind of take on what other people's perception of who she was. And I think to mum and dad, like they did an amazing job. Like they, to even having someone who like a child that needed so much attention, so much time, they still gave us time as, as kids. Like we still had plenty of time with my parents and hats off to them because it would have been an absolute struggle trying to not only raise a feral child like me and, and Alex that needed all the time and attention. And then, you know, the young Anna that came through at the end, but, um, 
I don't know how they did it. Sometimes I wonder, I've got two kids of my own and I'm flat out enough trying to chase after them, let alone all the other trouble or everything else that goes with them. Um, but we're lucky that the support at the time is nowhere near as what it was now, but there's still some support around. And we, and, you know, we used to have carers and stuff that come out every now and then and help us. And we used to go in the town. When we did go to towns, well, now there was some funding there, but overall, it, it's nowhere near what it is now these days. Yeah, right. Far out. I'm just sitting here just <laughs> just taking it all in. <laughs> Far out. Like, Yeah, it, I, I'm very lucky. Like, I suppose you, I probably keep saying that, but, mate, I've, I've got two legs and I can walk around and, you know, I've got both my arms still, which is pretty lucky on another on another level. But, mate, I, I'm I've two experiences that I've had has made me the person I am today. And um, like, uh, and and you know, I say I'm thankful for that. Like, it makes it gives me an aspect. It gives me that it changes my view on the world. Like, you know, it makes it makes me appreciate everything a bit more because I'm still here. Um, and I think, you know, I'm, I don't mean to sh- shift the conversation a bit, but I would like, you know. And it kind of goes on on further on what happens in my life. Like I've always kind of looked back at Alice and gone, "Well, see, you're not in a wheelchair. You're still alive, so you, you know you you should be thankful and very lucky to be where you are." Yeah, it's an incredible outlook. It's um, thanks. <laughs> no, it's bloody like it. You're just so optimistic. It's inspiring, and I think like you're one of these guys. I was gonna say nearly to use like an onion analogy, like from the the first introduction I had to you and still like I barely know you, but like there's all these different events and you're still just keeping on, keeping on and contributing not only with your own family, the business, but then in the community. And so that's a, a few things that I want to jump into. But so you... You left school in, in Brizzy and then, you, as you said before, you headed out to Longreach where you did the horse course where you were flat out like a bull at a gate and you <laughs> end up having a, a bit of a bad accident while you were there. And was, was this the first time you were really confronted with your own, I suppose, setback that because it was physical, I suppose, it, yeah, squared you up a bit more and, um, and opened your eyes? <laughs> Yeah, I suppose. So when so when I was at Longridge Ag College, it like um, it was on actually Anzac Day morning. I was supposed to be the light horseman in the Anzac Day parade, and I was involved in a motorbike motorbike accident. Um, we went out uh, to go catch the horses uh, for that morning that had been let out accidentally. So as a young kid, I'm mean, 17 years old, ran out there with a halter, um, caught the horses, and being uh, half lazy like I am, I decided to ride the horses back in instead of uh, lead them all the couple of K back into the house. Um, <laughs> so I'm on my way out, the instructor come out and he got up me for riding horses without a helmet. <laughs> and so I jumped on the back of the motorbike and, and he told me to get on the back of the motorbike, I'll take you back into the campus. Now I am mindful that I've cut Sam off here, but I just wanted to warn you there's a bit of a graphic story coming up. So if you're not one for a bit of a graphic content story about Sam's accident, skip forward a minute and a half, two minutes, and jump back on in then. And um, let the horses go. And anyway, as I jumped on the back of the bike, I had a halter in my hand and it wrapped in the back wheel and um, pulled my arm through the back wheel. 
And oh, fuck. As it did that, it wrapped up. Uh, the bone broke and my hand and arm went through the chain and sprocket of the motorbike. Oh. Um, pretty well. And then think what happened was the, the, the instructor, he, he, like he's a great fella. And, and like we've got to call each other bod brothers after that. But um, he kind of unfortunately went into a little bit of shock. And I kind of went into a bit of shock too. And um, I kind of, I was stuck on the back with my arm stuck in the back wheel. And I kind of had to direct him to rock the bike back and forth. Sorry, probably getting a bit gory. But uh, rock the bike <laughs> back and forth as I, as I pulled my arm out of the back, back of the bike. Um, unfortunately, we were, we were right behind the Stockman's Hall of Fame there in Longreach. And, I, and, you know, there's no one around. So I had to kind of get myself out of that situation. Um with him and we, uh, yeah, slowly, so as I kind of uh, untangled um, my arm out of the back, I had just meat and a bit of blood going everywhere and bones sticking out everywhere. And, and I kind of got to the end and we were lucky enough for Rusha to come across and and he saw us uh, and he got waved over and he'd come across and instruct a borrow the fellow's phone to call an ambulance. And the guy had a knife there, so it was good. I could cut the halter off my hand, which, had, uh, which was fine. My hand's actually didn't get hurt but the actual underside of my arm was the thing that got ripped up and I actually lost a muscle broke a bone and kind of just opened up my whole arm and um, as I got to the end I kind of had to pull one muscle out that was kind of wrapped in the back wheel that wasn't quite getting untangled and then um, I just had to wait for the ambulance yeah and then I kind of probably the biggest like and that's like you know it's pretty traumatic going through that type of event when you're 17 but I think the biggest thing that happened to me was going after going to the hospital and seeing the doctor and, you know, he's done a quick little, he's done the quick emergency response um, before I had to get flown out um, uh, uh, to Rocky. Um, but um, the doc, I think the toughest thing I had was 17 and then the doctor told me that I was going to lose my hand and my hand was fine, but just the damage that was done to the wrist and the, and the arm itself, um, yeah, he just said, mate, you've, pretty you know small you know it's pretty high probability you're gonna lose your hand you know um from the damage that's going on and um man i was just devastated that kind of rocked me pretty I like you know i was 17 i love i love music i love playing guitar i love playing rugby i was riding horses you know exactly what every 17 year old likes to do and um just got told that you're gonna lose your hand um and i just remember i just i just broke down i just absolutely just couldn't I just couldn't handle it. And I, and I was very lucky that I had a good family friend that were living in Longridge at the time, the Sheehan's, absolutely amazing people. They came in and, and they were kind of cuddled me a bit, you know, help, you know, and then I was lucky enough that some of my best, some of my best friends I've ever made in my life from college there. And they came in and they all surrounded me. And, you know, and if it wasn't for them coming, I don't, I don't know how many times I said thank you to them, but I just thanked them so much because that's what I needed. I, at that, at that time and moment, I was absolutely devastated and, and I just needed someone and, and they were there and they, and they came in and they supported me and they, and they stayed the whole time. And I had, I had like the same group of people kind of rotating around till I flew out on the, um, on the flight. So I was like, you know, I was so thankful for them for being there because, you know, as a 17 getting told, you're going to lose your hand. It's pretty devastating. And, um, and then and so was a, how, uh, how long was the like recovery for you from that from that moment and like oh mate it took a long i flew down to rocky got first got a couple of um surgeries down there putting the plate in place and 
started skin grafting to cover the um, the big like where all my skin grafts away and placing. I'm lucky I've got I've actually and and then I went to Brisbane had more specialist appointments down there and I, it took months. It, well, I ended up pulling out. I had I couldn't do any more of the horse course. I had to pull out for a bit for about six. To, I think it was about six months. And then I uh, and I actually was lucky enough that I've obviously I've still got my hand good 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 end of the story. I've still got my hand, my arm fully healed. Um, and I just slowly they the, the the college took me back and I slowly just to finish the horse course. I just I just started off. I didn't I, I kind of very slowly just worked my way back into it. Um, a lot of a lot of physio, a lot of rebuilds. Like you know, like the amount of people I saw just special. I was so lucky because on my way down there. Um, you know, I had like uh, Bill Glasson, he's he's a, he's a doctor that comes out to Longricks there. We mum got in touch with him and he put us in touch with the best some of the best hand specialists down um, specialists down in um Brizzy then and you know, if it wasn't for those people like that, it's always it's not what you know in life, it's who you know. And if it wasn't for the fact that, you know, we called you know, that that the Sheens knew Bill and, and Bill called up and rung around and, and he got in touch with the the you know, the hand specialist down in Brizzy and Got me straight onto, straight away. Got me out of Rocky. Got me down the Brisbane, and I had more surgeries down there. I wouldn't have my hand as I wouldn't be able to use my hand like I do now. And I'm just so thankful for that. Um, but yeah, it took a long time. Um, oh, it must have been yeah, it must have been about six or eight months, I think. Yeah, well, wow. time. And and even then, I had to wear I had to wear like a compression bandage for about two years after just with the skin graft, and the, just because of where it is, it, it just gets knocked a fair bit. Um, and just had, took such a long time for the skin graft to fully take and heal. Yeah. Bloody hell. So by the age of 20, you've had more traumatic experiences than most people would have in their yeah. life. And that was... I've also got, I've also got bitten by a snake bite. A snake too, and then rolled me on a kid. But, <laughs> but nothing, nothing too bad now. I just, I just, I was one of those kids where if my mum and dad went on their toes, like, you know, in between the stitches, yeah, and everything else there. Yeah, but anyway, you, sorry, you keep going, Ollie. I'll just throw another one in. Did did your mates ever start calling you cat or anything? Like, <laughs> uh, no. But let's just say we we you know we just about wore out the road going to the hospital when I was a young kid. <laughs> yeah, bloody hell. And so, when we were chatting the other day, you you used this awesome analogy which I loved, and it was you basically saying that we all get this cup, and then as these different events, like you think you're coping well, like your cup's actually filling up, and for you, it was by the age of twenty. You've had a few different accidents, but then you've you headed off to the Gulf, and then subsequently into the Territory, where you were working on a station, and and this was actually the the crux of the Movember story, um, where you had a worker. You woke up in the morning, everything was normal, and by the end of that day, someone you were working with had lost their life. And this, for yeah, based off what you told me, was the start of that cup really starting to fill up and where you needed help. Um, what what was it like at, at that time, particularly amongst the working team? Like, yeah, I suppose just if you could run us through a little bit around the, the yeah, events mate. and then what followed from that. Yeah, so I was, I was working in a station in the Territory and um, like I said, we pretty all woke up, all woke up that morning Going to Brecky, um, just think it's the same old day. It's you know it's pretty well still a bit of the wet season, so we're all stuck around the 
around the shed doing shed jobs and just the general homestead jobs until it's dry enough to start getting around. And um, unfortunately, there was an accident in the shed and um, uh, three, of them, three of us in the shed at the time and I was, I was pretty heavily involved in the accident and unfortunately, we lost one of our workmates uh, is, and you know, you, you you go you go through it all. Like the whole team was there. We're, we're all there at the, you know, during, during CPR and going through what until the ambulance rocked up. Like everyone was involved um, with it. And I just think it's it's just that after something like that happens, you lose someone close to you that you don't expect out of the blue. It, it it just hit everyone. It hit, like I I can't explain how much it hit everyone. It you could just it's just deflated. It's this sense of like the balloons popped. Um, after and I just remember the next couple of days after we were lucky enough that you know they responded well we had a specialist come up and you know, talk to us and um, they came and scored us on the property and stuff and uh, to, tell you, to tell you the truth I really struggled that year I had an absolute hell of a year I, I, I really I suffered from a bit of PTSD and I kind of I didn't know why I was getting these rashes and I was swelling up and I was just and it was all coming back to that. It was just the anxiety and the stress and the PTSD from what happened on the accident. And all year, I just kind of battled through this. And um, a couple of times through the year, just it just got too much. And and I really, I really was just questioning everything. Um, and I was lucky enough that my wife, my my now wife Emily came up, and she actually got the bookkeeping job up there. Um, so she was with me during that year, and and like, like she just really helped me get through that year. But um, I was lucky enough also a couple of times um, had very good friends that come up and saw me and checked in and, you know, they helped me get through it. But it, but it wasn't until the next year that I really kind of crashed. I, I got home, I, I finished up at, up up there and I came back home. I, I decided I better get, you know, I got offered a few different opportunities, but I, I decided I better come home. And I, I, I kind of knew internally I needed to sort myself out a bit. Um, and I just, and I was back home, I was contracting, I was working full time at home and it, and it just got too much. It like, and, and I was, and I was just doing stupid things. I was, you know, I was working flat out, taking no regard for my, my um, personal wellbeing. I was going out and whenever we were partying, I'd pretty well write myself off every time I'd partied and I just hit this terrible cycle of just working hard and partying hard every weekend. And it kind of hit a point where I just, I remember coming home and I just finished up um, a couple of weeks at the station doing contracting and, and mum and dad, you know, mum and dad were noticing I was, I was different. Emily was noticing I was different. And Emily's parents were noticing, everyone was noticing I was different. And they pulled me up about it and, and they just said like, you know, Sam, how are you going? Like, you you just seem different at the moment. And I just broke down. I just broke down and cried in the kitchen there for about, God knows how many hours I just sat there crying, and and it was just too much. Um, I just everything I just had enough. I just had enough. I didn't want to be on the property. I didn't want to anything to do with agriculture. I just, you know, I kind of I just said to myself, like, I've had enough. I just want to get away. Um, and and Mum and Dad were good. They and I was very lucky to have them and Emily beside me supporting me. And and they just said, well, why don't we? Why don't you see someone? And and honestly, the hardest thing anyone can ever do is admit there's a problem. Second hardest thing you can do is do something about it, and and you know they they were very good. They took me in. They, they went with me. I was, I was very nervous, and I went and saw a mental health specialist in Townsville, and um, 
And she gave me that great analogy and explained it to me. You know, she goes, you've got, you've got a cup and there's only so much you can put in this cup of all this accidents and trauma. And, and, you know, sometimes people's cups are bigger than other people's cups, but at one, at some point in life, the cup will overflow if you don't manage or learn how to manage or do something about it. And, um, and I, and I really, and I'm not going to say like that was, that was, you know, that's me, you know, it was the eye opening thing, but, it took me a few sessions um, seeing her and I know and I, and I started making a bit of a turnaround and, and then um, it, it, I'll tell you the truth, it's probably, it, that was probably a good seven years ago, six, six years ago now. And I think it took me about three years to get it right. Um, three years of seeing someone of getting my routine right. Like I'm, I'm pretty heavily routine focused. I don't, I, st- I stopped drinking during the week. I don't drink during the week. Only, only on the weekends I might have a couple. Like you know, but I know my limits. I know what, I know I've learned what triggers me. Um, like you know, for a while there, especially after the accident, I'd and it was funny things where I'd get back and I'd just trigger. I'd be sitting in a tractor and I'd flash back to the accident, or I'd be sitting on a bike and I'd flash back to being at college, or and and I and it just, and I'd wake up at night. I was trying to sleep. And I couldn't sleep some nights and, I, and I'd, you know, you'd sit there and I'd sit there flicking through Netflix at two o'clock in the morning because I couldn't sleep. Um, and it took me a long time to get right. It, and if it wasn't for the things, seeing someone, friends and family supporting me, getting a good routine and aware of what triggers me, I wouldn't be in the position I am now. Um, but yeah, it took, it was a long and hard road and every, even now, it's not, it's not like, I'm fixed or I'm healed or anything like that. I think it's, I'm just a work in progress. That's what I see myself as. And every day I just, I just keep on ticking away at it. Like I get up in the morning, I do my yoga stretch and have my five or 10 minutes. I, I try and it gets me going in the day. And I always try and at least five times a week meditate just to have some time myself and reflect. Um, I'm forever reading, especially I like reading stories of, um, just, just people that overcome something in life. Um, Currently got the happiest man on earth, that E. Jacko. How good is it? I'm reading it. Now. Oh, I can't put it down. He. Um, that's good. Yeah, he's yeah. been through a bit, hasn't he? But, and that's it. I think I don't know. There's sounds like you know you kind of you kind of like you know people that are worse than you, and I don't know. I, I just I I know like I've got to keep a routine, and and that's what kind of gets me through. Yeah, and I was going to ask like on along the way as you started to, I suppose, admit to yourself and then to those around you and started seeking help around mental health, were there friends that stepped away? It was kind of too much for them to, to deal with. And like, how did you, did your friendships change during that time? Yes. Um, I think it's one of those things that I think it's tough. Like it's tough being a friend when you go through shit. And honestly, like I was a terrible friend. I was a proper asshole. Like I just, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been friends with me. But and there's a, and there's a couple of people that I'm like, there's a couple of people that probably just you don't, you don't, you know, you didn't have a falling out with them, but you just did, you stop talking to them. And then on the other side of the coin, I've, I've probably lost a lot of friends, not lost a lot of friends, but just just stop being as I just kind of reduced my friend circle. Like I've kind of got about a handful of friends now that I'm best mates with and, and, and I talk to them and I call them pretty regularly and, and you know, like 
Um, they're pretty important. They're very important, and they and and and, I, and like I'm, I hope I'm important to them. But I've kind of found that I've gone from having a big group of friends and stuff like that that I've kind of you know socialized to just you know this handful of people that I love and I really um, you know try and keep in contact with and 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 they're there for me and I'm there for them and they're the ones that stuck through it like they're the ones that were there when I was just an absolute pest on the piss or you know drinking so much I'd black out like they they were there for me um, and and like I'd do anything for them now but I have found that I have found that and that's probably not not a fault of myself or the people that I don't have as much to do with now but it's just I just I just I just know um, I can't be there for everyone or and I, I'm, and you know, you, you do, you kind of work at who your friends are when you go through stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. Now it's interesting. Like, I suppose from my perspective, like I've had really close mates who have suffered mental health. Like I was actually working for one of them at one stage and, um, got a call from his brother saying, Oh, can you go find, <laughs> go and find mm. James. And anyway, I went back to the house and I was like, fuck like this is bad like when you he was in a bad way but yeah. for them to call and be like yeah no you need to get back there if you find him just take him with you and i was off fencing and i just remember like walking around every room like in that house just opening the door like fuck what am i gonna find behind this door and then like subsequently to that like you you think people are on the straight and narrow again and then all of a sudden like over christmas and, and after last year it was really interesting yeah, friends, girlfriends and whatnot, and they'd be like, oh, he was actually really struggling at different times. And you're like, far out, like, just completely missed all the, like, either he's been really good at hiding it or I haven't checked in enough. And it's probably a mix of both, I reckon, on that front. And it's like, coming back to that point that you're making there about being a better friend and, and watching the signs, it's like, shit, it doesn't take much, but you have to be really aware of what's happening around you. Yeah, and I think I think another example, and one of those things that kind of really drove me to do the Movember last year is um, so I've, I've pretty much the last couple of years I've, I've really I've got myself right, like I'm in a good headspace, and I really worked hard, especially before having kids. I, I wanted to make sure I could be the best dad I could possibly be. So that you know, and that included getting everything right um, in my mental health space, and. And what really came down that hit me again last year was I had a had a fellow, young fellow involved in our rugby club, um, and he t- and sadly took his life. And he kind of came out like everyone knew he kind of was having his bits ups and downs, but he kind of came out of nowhere, and it and it just affected us so much in the club. And you know, lovely family, great guy, great, great like brothers, but like they're all good people, big legends. But it came out of kind of the blue a little bit, and. It was one of these things that really drove me to do be involved with November and kind of, I suppose, step up in that. You know, I wanted to step up a bit more in community space and mental health, and and just to share my story, and you know, just just to be able to say it's not okay. You know, be you know, like everyone, you know, what I mean, it's, it's you've got to be able to start some point of conversation, and and the easiest thing to do is I found, or last thing to do is start the conversation, but I found what during November when I started sharing my story and, and sharing different tips and stuff like that is I had people coming out of the woodworks I'd really talk to and were like, thank you so much for sharing your story. And, you know, like I had friends that were sharing it to their classrooms and 
and I had, you know, just people that were thanking me. And I, and I did not think that response. All I want to do was, I suppose, all, my goal was I just didn't want to see someone else take their life in my community. And because um, I saw the effects of what happened in a rugby club. And um, it was just amazing response. And the people that would come out and go, look, I've really suffered with mental health. I've really struggled. And I just want to thank you for, help, you know, sharing the story. It's really, it's helped me. And, and, and I did not expect that at all. And, and it is those people that you think are all good and fine and dandy and, you know, the, the life of the party, they're the ones that are sometimes really suffering um, and they're really struggling. And, and you, they just don't know unless they have a friend to come up from. And that's what I really pushed during the November campaign was I really just wanted everyone to, if you've got a mate, give them a call, you know, how are you going? What are you, are you, how are you traveling? You're right. You know, like just to check up on your mates, just to see if they're okay. And, and it might not be anything. It might be a 10 minute yarn talking smack or it might open up to something where a couple of phone calls later, they'll open up to you and be like, mate, I'm really struggling. And, you know, and the only way to do that is to talk, talk to people and ask them. And unfortunately they're the hardest conversations to have. Yeah, no, for sure. And it's it like, November's an awesome one. I, I, like I said it in the podcast, which went out last week with uh, the the guys at Trademark, like November's awesome. Are you okay? Day's awesome. But it's like, we can't just yeah. ta- approach these things as a one day. Like we have to build it in that yeah. it's a habit and it is checking in. And one of those, or I was going to say a book recommendation for you, which I reckon you might love is Brene Brown's Daring Greatly, which talks about the courage to, to be vulnerable. Um, it's it's a heck of a book and like along what you're saying there of checking in, I actually tried something on the Instagram and Facebook yesterday when I uploaded um, saying like January, I'm going to be talking about mental health kind of starting the year this way. And I was like, tag a friend below who you to let them know that you're going to call and check in on them. And it's like, yeah. it's funny. I don't know. It's social media, yeah. social media, but it's like, fuck. If, if you actually made the intent and you'd be like, Sam, I'm taking you. I'll give you a call, mate, <laughs> sometime this week. Then it's like, like it, it's such a little thing, but it's like, I don't know. We, yeah, we just need it, it's, hold, it's holding you accountable. It's and you know, the keep it accountability is great for everyone. But I, I, I 100% agree with you. Like, man, I'm right, laying right. I'm sitting here right now with my truck much shirt on. Like, those boys do an amazing job. Like, and 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 they really did that. Starting that conversation. Like, I've been, I've got some of the early shirts and and try to you know. Like, and they, they just did a cracking job. Like, and that's exactly right. Like it, it can't just be a couple of times a year that we decide to call our mates and see if they're okay. It's all during the year. You know, if, if you know something's wrong with your mate, you should be able to give them a buzz. You should, it, it doesn't mean that you wait for are you okay day comes around before you call someone and ask if they're okay or November comes around and you, and you do your big spiel on Facebook. Mate, who cares? Just anytime you see a mate down, give them a buzz or just, you know, just, I, I don't think, mental health should be held for a couple of days during the year. I believe, you know, because it doesn't hold for a couple of days during the year. It affects everyone all year round. And I think if we're always there for someone and, and being able to be present and accountable, I suppose is the other thing. And to your mates too, like, and it takes them on the other side of the coin. Like if you know, the hardest thing to do is if you are having mental health trouble or if you're struggling is to ask for help. And, and you've got to get those people to reach out, like give them a pat on the back because that's a massive, massive effort to just reach out and say, look, I'm struggling. I need to see someone or I want to have a chat. Like that's a, 
that's a big thing. So if someone ever does that to you, make sure you give them the time of day. And I'm and, and drop everything what you're doing. I don't care what you're doing. Just drop it because they've just dropped their whole life to tell you that. So just drop everything that you're doing and listen to them because you might save a life. You never know. Bloody hell, I think, yeah, it comes back to that that courage to actually admit that you need help. Like that, that is so brave if you can go and do that. But oh. it's also showing that you're not willing to give up yet either. And I reckon that's the, the part. And if you're to take an optimistic outlook, like there's still, if, if someone's willing to do that, they're not just throwing in the towel and they're, they're keen to see the other side and work through it. So that's, it. that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Now, mate, I wanted to ask a question. It, I suppose it builds on your whole life story today. But, yeah, you mentioned before that you've got a couple of young kids who uh, who you've been teaching how to tie ropes and lasso everything. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, how, how have your experiences, you think, going to – shape your approach and or change your approach to particularly when it comes to yeah the mental health conversations with your kids as they grow up mate i think i just want to always have an like that open door policy like i I think the biggest thing is i suppose two biggest things is that being able to show vulnerability and having an open door like i've and i and i and i'm like doing things like this talking to you right now in a podcast and, and you know talking to people when you're out in public, like it's the bravest thing you do is show vulnerability these days. And I, and I really feel like more people need to do it because when you put up this front, all you're doing is kidding yourself, you know? And I really do want to show my kids that it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to say you're not okay. It's okay to have a cry because, you know, if something went terribly wrong or you're missing someone or someone passed away or, you know, it's okay to do that. And be like, and I just want them to know too is that, is just to be able to talk to me. Like I just, I, I try and we always have big conversations. I mean, well, just yesterday I was the princ- I was the princess. Wouldn't believe it. And uh, my daughter was the dragon. We're kind of switching roles for a bit. And and you know you just you just want to be able to talk. And, and you know I sit there all the time. I go, how are you going, girl? Like you know, you just want to be able to ask them how are you going. And I just hope to hell that my kids can just if, if something was ever wrong, I I want them to be able to tell me. And I, I, I know every parent wishes that. But I think to do that, you've got to be able to show vulnerability back at them. So if they've asked you, how are you going? And you're not having a good day, tell them. Tell them daddy's, daddy's struggling. Daddy's, daddy had a tough day today, but, you know, he's still here. He's still, he's still fighting. But, um, but yeah, he, he, just, he had a rough day today. Yeah, it's in- incredibly powerful. Mate, I reckon, oh, I've been kind of scribbling just some little notes as we've been talking. Because <laughs> one thing, and I don't know if you can tell or not, but I, I actually try not to write questions before I do podcasts or anything. Because I was like, oh well, it's a bit boring. So I'd like, I try and know as much about the person's story as I can, and then just see where it goes. But as we were talking, like I just your sense of optimism is just infectious. And although you've been through all these different struggles, Thanks, like. Mate. Shit, like this has been such an inspiring chat to to be part of. So, I think. Thank um, you. Yeah, you said a few times that you're lucky, but I feel incredibly lucky that you spared a bit of time and jumped on the the Humans of Ag podcast. And although you're up in Hewenden, way up there in Queensland, and I'm down here in Victoria, I actually feel like, yeah, uh, I've made a bit of a mate with you, Sam. So <laughs> that's good, Ollie. No, look, I just I just really do believe. 
right now. And, and that's why, because I, I've got myself in a really good headspace. I've, I've worked hard for the last couple, and like I said to you, I had a couple of really dark years there um, after I finished up the territory and I come back. But I've got myself in the right space right now, and I've been in the good space for the last couple of years. I, I just, I really just, I just wish like this conversation, even we're having a conversation now on the podcast, and I just, I really wish even this, if there's one person that listened to it and said, you know what, I'm not okay, I'm going to go see someone, or, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell my mum and dad or tell my wife that I'm having a tough time or talk it through with someone. That's all I want um, because that's the thing that saved me um, is that is that ability that I had a conversation with my parents and, and my wife. And and that's all I want because once you open that door, mate, that, that, that's a floodgate, you know, that, and that can, really, that can really change people's lives just by having some conversations. Yeah, absolutely. No, well, Thanks a lot for taking the time, Sam, to to chat and share your story. It's um, yeah, an incredible ride that you've been on, and I'll tell you what, your kids are bloody lucky to have a dad like you. So <laughs> you've never got me cheering up, Ollie. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'd love to know what you guys thought of today's episode. You can get in touch with us on Instagram at Humans of Agriculture with an underscore or. Reach out to me directly, ollie at humansofagriculture.com. Sam's story, I just find him such an incredibly fascinating and, and down-to-earth guy. I hope each of you took something away from today, even if it is just picking up the phone and having a chat with someone. If today's episode brought up anything for, for you that's of concern or you just feel like you want to talk to someone or have a family member or a friend, you think they could deal with someone reaching out to them, you can get in touch with the TX support line and either text or call them on 0488 Thanks again for joining us. Stay safe, stay sane, and I look forward to joining you guys again next week.